You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. This week on the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, it's the author and criminal justice advocate, Quan Wen. But first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new weekend. Choose your struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And you can bounce back, just as you come on in, listening to just struggle. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. So great to be with you all. This is a special episode, only, only more amazing by what's coming on Monday. Today is the 99th episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. The, um, uh, stat that I cite a lot and that I tell a lot of people who are first starting out into podcasting is <laughs> there's some truth to the the stereotype that everybody and their mother has a podcast. But but more accurate would be to say that everybody and their mother has started a podcast because if you make it to episode 25, you're in the 90th percentile of podcasts. And if you make it to 100, you are in the <laughs> very small percentile of podcasts. So uh, tomorrow, or I should say Monday, excuse me, the 100th episode is a big deal. The 100th episode is going to be sort of uh, what I've learned over the last year and a half from podcasting and, and uh, the people I've gotten to talk to. A bit of the 100 episode spectacular kind of thing that sitcoms do, uh, but more just me reflecting. That's that's going to be Monday. So uh, today is is... Um, you know, this is, it's a big deal for me. I'm very excited to, to, to have made it this far and I can't think of a better guest than this week's guest, um, to, to, to celebrate this awesome occasion because, uh, he's a guy that I think (laughs) perseverance, um, and, just constant evolution are words and themes that come to mind uh, for this episode. So the guest is Quan Huen. And Quan is a guy who, as I called him on the on the theme, the intro there, Quan uh, is a guy who's written a book, uh, but that's sort of secondary because he is an incredible teacher, uh, advocate, around criminal justice issues and around um, helping those who are are getting, in some cases, their second, but but let's be honest here, in a lot of cases, their first chance uh, being released from prison, uh, because sadly, so many of the, the people who are there weren't even given a first chance in the first place. And uh, Quan himself is that guy. He he served 22 years uh, in, in jail, first in a, in a uh, a youth detention center. And then as an adult, um, he narrowly avoided death row, uh, for a murder that he is honest that he committed. Um, I I think you'll hear in this, what's so fascinating about Quan is that he is a guy who directly challenges a lot of the BS that we hear around the criminal justice system, because the first time he was arrested, it was for nothing. 
Um, you know, did he make a dumb decision in a moment? Yeah, he did, but he it was kind of a teenage decision kind of thing, uh, partly out of defending himself and his family, uh, that he actually wasn't even involved in a violent episode, but he got blamed for it. And then that really sent him in a direction that led to him actually committing murder, uh, which he owns up to. Um, And the vulnerability of this episode is unreal because I can't imagine, you know, people tell me I'm brave for sharing my story. But, you know, the United States especially, but this world loves a redemption story. If you don't believe me, see, oh, I don't know, any movie in Hollywood. Uh <laughs> So so there definitely is a piece of that. People love to ascribe their own views on uh, redemption and, and, and on sort of accepting our faults to my story, um, which is fine. You know, people can kind of think whatever they want once I've told my story, as long as they hear my message, where you don't get the benefit of that doubt. The group that very rarely gets the benefit of the doubt is uh, or, or that lesson whatsoever is a person in Quan's situation. Now, are there people that, that still love him? Of course. Are there people that accept his story? Of course. And I hope that you all listening are those people. Uh, but, but, you know, we, if you are, you're in the minority, we are in the minority because so many people see someone who's done what Quan has done and they're like, all right, you know, that's it. You're done. You're a monster. And of course, that's not the case. Um, you know, nobody is born a monster. There are, of course, psychological illnesses, but even you know, it's such a small percentage of people who are born, um, you know, with uh, some of these uh, sort of the, the the commonalities that we see in people who become serial killers. Um, so such a small percentage of those born with those commonalities end up actually committing these violent acts. And I'm not saying Quan is that at all. That's, that's not my point here. But I'm saying that we try to find rationalities to just say, oh, these people are monsters. They were born this way. And that's, of course, never true. So uh, I really appreciated Quan's openness, uh, his honesty, his vulnerability, Um he his forthright he didn't shy away from any of this and i really applaud him for that because it'd be very easy uh to sort of fall back on you know i think of i think of like uh athletes right and and um i was just tweeting this the other day right you could you could say whatever you want to a baseball manager and they're going to give you the same canned answer every time there's that famous scene in uh bull durham if you've not seen that sports movie go do it it's very good kevin costner uh tim robbins very very funny uh, but it's it's there's a, a scene where Kevin Costner, who's the veteran, is teaching Tim Robbins, the young sort of upstart, how to do a postgame interview. And it's, of course, you know, the same answers every time. Just happy to be here, all that kind of stuff. It'd be very easy for Quan to do that here. It'd be very easy for him to fall back on safe and, and easy answers. And he doesn't do it. He is very open and honest. And I appreciate that. Uh, one note, as my wife now loves to kid, it wouldn't be an episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast without me mentioning the audio quality. Um, Quan had an issue with his mic. Uh, we, we tried to make it work. Uh, I, I then did my best in the uh, editing stage of this, um, but you'll hear it. It's rough, uh, but that's okay. You know, um, I, I'm not a professional editor. Y'all know that. Um, the rest of my team is amazing as they are, and shout out to my team because they uh, they always listen. Um, 
the one thing we don't have right now, one of the things we don't have is a professional editor in-house. So, uh, it, you know, at some point you'll probably notice a difference in sound quality. You'll be like, oh my God, what's going on? No, it's not that I just got better. It's because I finally hired someone. Uh, but that is not, that has not happened yet. And it's not happening in the near future. So, um, just notice that today. Other than that, Enjoy this episode with Quan and look, I'm going to say this one more time because I really think it's important. Please hold your judgments. You know, please do that. This is one of the goals of this show is to educate, to end stigma, and then to educate with fact-based education and honest education and not sort of the, the BS that, that tugs at our, our mind, our hearts instead of our minds. Uh, that means even times like this, when when somebody has done something uh, that we can all agree is atrocious, Quan says it, you know, um, but but he still is a human and he still deserves, uh, you know, he deserves our, our empathy and our love. So uh, please, you know, enjoy Quan's message here today and uh, stick around till the end for your card and your good egg. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel. That famous quote by the extraordinary Maya Angelou is exactly why I speak. It's why I tell my story and mix education around the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy with motivation, inspiration, and purpose. So when you're looking for your next keynote or breakout session speaker, reach out. Find me at my website, jshiffman.com, and I promise you, your employees, your group members, the students at your school, everybody will come away having learned something. And that's how we create change. Reach out today. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, uh, my name's Quan uh, Huyen. I work as the senior program manager at uh, Defy Ventures. It's a nonprofit that helps uh, men and women with uh, criminal histories to transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. And you uh, have a very um, applied <laughs> a story to that to your work, isn't that right? Yes. Well, I would love if you took this opportunity to to tell the couple minute version of that story. Yeah, uh, I'm also a graduate of the program. I've done uh, 22 years of my life in correctional institutions. I paroled from a life sentence back in 2015. Uh, I went to prison for a murder I committed back in 1999. Uh, was given a life sentence and fortunately was paroled November 2015. So it's a little bit over five years now. So I am reading your book. I'm about halfway through. And what I think is so incredibly fascinating about your, about your book is that you mix the transcript from – you're going to correct me here. But what it, a, a, a transcript that you actually lived through as the defendant and – your own recollection of your story. Yes, those are transcripts from our parole hearings. Uh, when you go to a parole board hearing, that's uh, they put the transcripts, uh, they're issued transcripts to men that are incarcerated. Um, for some reason in the state of California, like in the prison system, men did not share their transcripts with each other. It was, it's, it was considered 
very private. It's considered you're not supposed to ask about it. Um, so you, so take us back. You you went to to prison at a pretty young age. Yes, I was first arrested at the age of seventeen, and that began uh, uh, a long road of going in and out of the justice system, and then ultimately uh, with me committing murder in nineteen ninety nine. At 22, 23 years old. And from your book, the first time you were arrested for a pretty capital offense was, a let's call it what it is, it's a little bit of BS. Yeah, I, I was arrested for, um, uh, they, they charged me for three counts of a conspiracy to commit murder, or three attempted murders and a conspiracy to commit murder. Um we, uh, my brother and some of my friends, we had beef with some local uh, skinhead uh, youths at our school. Uh, they had called to threaten my family. Um, my brother came to my work that evening. Uh, I was working at a, a, a bus, uh, at a at the Subway sandwich shop, and they asked if I knew where uh, those guys lived. I didn't, and I asked my coworker uh, where, if she knew, and she just drew us a very crude map saying this is where they live. Um, my brother and my friend said, we'll be back to uh, pick you up tonight at 10 o'clock. And one of my friends had a gun at the time. Um, it was a small 22 caliber handgun. Uh, none of us have ever, ever shot it. Uh, we went, um, my friend had pulled it out before at a party when we were in high school, when these same skinheads had surrounded us. And I saw when everybody ran and just the power it gave us. So I think after that, it just became in our, in our mindset and just, I guess, in our, every time we talked. It was like, okay, we're going to shoot them up. We're going to do this with the gun. It was just macho talk, I, I believe. Uh, so that day when they came and the map was drawn, uh, I, I said, okay, when I get off, we'll find this house and we'll shoot it up. Um, and that's what we talked about and discussed. So I got off at 10 o'clock that night. Uh, my brother and my friends weren't there. When I got home, my brother was in bed, I think, and he was terrified. He was 15 at the time. And he said that my friends had actually went to a local arcade uh, found another kid that knew where they lived. They went over there, and one of my friends actually ended up running up inside the house and shooting three of those uh, skinhead kids. Fortunately, they all survived, but within a couple weeks, they arrested all of us, including me, for the conspiracy because I was there where they said the original planning. So I think this is such an interesting story because, as we'll get to in a minute, you eventually did commit uh, some pretty serious acts, but at this point, you weren't—I mean, you weren't really like a gang kid or something, right? I mean, no, I was not. Yeah, yeah. At this point, you're a pretty regular teenager who who gets caught up in this moment, as many of us do when we're in our teens. You do something stupid, but in this case, quite frankly, what you did wasn't even that big of a deal. You get caught up. You all of a sudden get this target on your back. You go into a juvenile detention center. And it, it, is it fair to say, and please tell me if I'm wrong, that this kind of sent you in a different direction? Oh, yeah, it, it absolutely did. I think it, it's where I felt I had to conform and, and, and try to fit in. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that I was not victimized. So to do that, I would have to begin like uh, perpetrating violence and victimizing others. And what's so so sad about this, about this part of your story is that it is the direct opposite of what people mostly think about 
the criminal justice system. Oh, it's supposed to help people. It helps turn their life around. In this case, it did the exact opposite for you. Here you were a kid who was getting blamed for something you didn't do. You were literally at work at the time that this all went down. Your only quote unquote crime was having some friends who, who kind of like had some anger issues, although, you know, the skinheads had threatened your family. And now you sort of get this, uh, this new brand and, and it sends you in that direction towards eventually committing murder. Yeah. I would have to say that I remember like even, um, when we were first arrested, I felt like, how did I get arrested? And like my, the coworker that drew the map, nothing ever happened to her. Um, my, my crime meet, uh, one of my crimeys, he was the oldest one that point that brought the people to the house. He got less time than me. And it was, yeah, because, and, and for me, I was like, okay, well, my coworker, because she was white and my, my, my co-defendant or the guy that pointed out the house because he was white and the rest of us were, you know, people of color. And so then they just um, threw the book at us. And, and you had said in your book how you had trouble fitting in before this. You were in very white areas. Your dad was sort of a community organizer, uh, a, a really uh, proud of your heritage kind of family. And then you... <laughs> It almost from your book to me, what I the sense that I was getting was that you had these dual experiences where your family was very proud of its heritage, and then that exact heritage is the reason that you get this incredibly harsh uh, sentence. When as you're as you're saying, other people who did worse actions were were let off in a, in, a, in an easier way. Yeah, I, I think even because I. Um... Yeah, like I, I grew up in Provo, Utah. That's uh, where we came to the United States after we lost our country from the Vietnam War. Um, and of course, my father is proud of our heritage and he tried to instill that in me, but we were the only Vietnamese family over there and also the only Roman Catholic family. And so I felt like we just stuck out. And of course, you know, I, I think what kid wants to stick out? I, well, they all want to be liked. We want to be accepted. And, and that's all I wanted. So I remember just thinking, my father telling me, oh, just be proud of the heritage. But I think it was that heritage and, and looking different is the reason why I was teached at school and, and why there were uh, incidents of racism while we grew up over there. So you're 17. You go through that experience. You end up going, going to this, this juvenile detention center. And how long are you in there? About two. I ended up doing about two, two and a half years. Um on that day, I ended up pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit a crime. They sentenced me to seven years. And then um, in the California Youth Authority, we also go to parole hearings. And um, I, I think, I'm not totally sure, but I think even the commissioner, when I went to my first hearing, I think he knew I kind of got, a, uh, got screwed on a raw deal because I was, I was let out very early before I even uh, was transferred. They, they paroled me from, I think, my very first initial hearing, which is unheard of. And how long between being let out and do you go back in? Uh, about nine months or a year. I got violated the first time. Uh, I was with some of, by that time I, I came home. Uh, I didn't really feel like I fit in with anywhere. Um, I, I started trying to attend college, but there were some of my friends that I knew from inside. And these were the ones that I felt could understand and who I could relate to. So those were the ones I started hanging out with, and that was be beginning what began the, the core of our gang right there. 
I got violated, I think about nine months after that, we were at a Taco Bell uh, hanging out and I guess someone got shot down the street. The police came, the gang uh, unit came and formed on us and they searched uh, the cars. One of the other cars had a gun in it. I wasn't in that car, but because I was on parole, they violated me for being in the vicinity of uh, people with uh, guns. So sort of two things happening here. Number one is another raw deal by our justice system. You, you're again, your only offense, quote unquote, in this moment is being around someone else who did something. That's number one. But number two, you go to jail at a very formulative, formative age, right? You go to jail at 17 or this criminal or this, this, this uh, youth unit. And that is such an age that, that a lot of our, our being, a lot of our identity is imprinted on that, on us. As you said, you come out and now all of a sudden you don't feel like you really fit in because this formative period for you was spent in jail. You come out and you're hanging out with people that you feel understand you. And those are other people who have been to jail, right? It's not surprising that that's what's going on. And so you keep going down this path that is a very complicated path. Yeah, I think because like, you know, there's a part of me especially later on when I started looking back, okay, I chose to go down to hang out with them. I could have chosen different, but then like there was a part of me that felt like this is where I fit. This is where I belong. And um, these are people that understand me. You know, I, I came home. I'm now a convicted felon. I, I, I was struggling with uh, getting work and I was ashamed about my past and couldn't talk about it. And, you know, these were guys that I felt understood me. So your crew goes to a nightclub and that would end up being the night to change your life. Yeah. Uh, we, we went to a nightclub up in Hollywood. Uh, some of my friends ended up fighting with another group of uh, a, a different uh, rival group. And when I came out, I found out that there was uh, a fight uh, from there. I put into motion uh, series of, uh, of, you know, of us following them on the freeway, coordinating where they were at. Um, they, I, I guess they had began to harass some of the, um, the women that had gone with us in a different car They threw uh, bottles at it and started harassing them. And we followed them and just coordinated where they were at. I ended up, I think we ended up following them for about 20, 25 miles. And then I shot, uh, into the car, killed one man named Minwin and injured a couple other, uh, people inside and it's not long right before you are someone in your group uh admits what you did and, and you are rearrested this time for murder yes it was about four months after uh the murder happened i was arrested and tried for the death penalty so in those four months Talk a little bit about where your head was, right? You've just done something. Now, obviously, as we've talked about already, there's been a lot done to you, a lot done wrong. But this is the moment, as you talk about in your book, as you've already told to me in separate conversations, that you freely admit this was on me. I made this decision. At the same time, you have to be terrified, right? You've done this thing. I have to assume at least a piece of you, like you probably feel horrible, but at least a piece of you is also terrified that you're going to get caught. Yeah, I would say it's a mixture of all of that, you know, because by that time, 
I had been involved with uh, 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 numerous shootings. And so just, but then regardless, there was a part of me that was terrified that I was going to get caught. There was another part of me that felt um, like triumphant or proud. Okay, I, I, I put in additional work for the gang. I get more more fame or, or, or recognition and everything else in between where I felt like disconnected or I felt like, oh my God, I killed somebody. And there's another part that go, oh yes, I, I did. This is another strike for me. And it's a, it's a mixture of all of that. And we don't hear about that a lot because uh, of course we live in a society that black and white thinking kind of resides. It's either this or that. We don't, we don't get the story a lot of, of the conflict. Now, again, I want to make it clear. Neither one of us is trying to excuse your actions, right? That's not at all what we're trying to do, but, but this simple uh, labeling that our society does of you've done this heinous act. You are now a terrible person who could only be feeling one thing, you know, this triumphant, as you are saying, that is a piece of it, but that's not at all the entire equation. There is a lot of other emotions going on in this and you are still a person. There are still other aspects of your life, you know, as, as we haven't really touched on yet, but your father died a couple of years before this. Uh, you're living in a single parent household. Uh, and, and there are a lot of factors at play that, that don't really, the depth isn't acknowledged when we talk about people who have committed a crime. Yeah, I, and I think that's just how I call it. Okay, I, I've been arrested for the first time. I'm just labeled this way and, and I no longer fit in. Um, it wasn't until years later into my life sentence where I realized that there was all these things that happened to me and yet there were all these things I chose to do and where did the path go wrong from there? And um, accepting it, understanding it, and then realizing that I could use these same choices to find my way out, to find my myself again. So you're arrested. Uh, one of your one of your gang members flips on you. Uh, you get tried for the death penalty, but they don't convict you of that, right? They they don't. There wasn't enough evidence by that time. I had a got rid of evidence. I had coached witnesses and, um, yeah, um, they found me guilty of second degree murder. Uh, they did not believe the jury did not believe that I was the actual shooter, uh, because the person that had testified against me, he was lying on the stand about a bunch of different things. And, uh, my attorney proved him to be a liar. They didn't, they didn't believe they thought that he was the shooter. So how do how do you feel about that? Because as you said, he was lying about a lot. He obviously flipped for for reasons of his own, but you were the shooter. Like how 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 does that sit in your head? You know that you were able uh, sort of the, the criminal justice system screwed you over at an early age, and kind of you you kind of got one back at this moment. Yeah, I think at the time I justified. It. I said, hey, this this guy's got immunity from the prosecution. Uh, he and and he's a snitch, and that's, that's how I looked at. It. So this guy has got nothing coming. So uh, I'm just gonna flip the script and say I didn't do the shooting. It was him. That's why he's up here lying. And uh, that's the way uh, we put up the defense. Uh, I guess fortunately the jury believed it, or I would have been on death row right now. So you don't go to death row, but you are convicted and you go to prison. And you, it was not a instant sort of reversal, right? I mean, you did not 
as you said just a minute ago, you you did have a sort of I don't know if you want to call it an awakening or or, or a mental reversal, but but that took a while. Yeah, it it, it took about ten, eleven years because when I when I was found guilty of second degree murder, so out here in California, that means uh, I was given a fifteen year to life sentence. At the time, they were not paroling any lifers at all from like 1977 on uh, they had not paroled one single lifer in the state of california so whether it's five to life or a hundred years to life or life without possibility of parole life meant life you were not i mean i think one of the governors was famously quoted as saying the only lifer that gets to go home is the one that, i mean that, that gets to leave prison is the one that leaves in the casket basically all lifers were going to die in prison and so when i went up to the prison system, that was my mindset. Okay, I'm going to die in here, so I'm just going to live the way I want to live. So so talk about that, because I, I had somebody on this show, another person who was convicted of murder last season, and one of the things that this person was super open about is we who have never gone to prison, which is most of us, are sadly less and less of us every year, but but still most of us, have very little idea of what prison's really like because movies don't get it right. TV does not get it right. Uh, so, so what was your mindset being like, this is my life now. This is what I'm, how I'm going to live. My mindset was, okay, this is how I'm going to live. So what do the rules matter? I, if I want to hustle, if I want to get involved with the gambling records, if I want to push uh, uh, dope, Whatever I want to do, there's nobody here can, can tell me anything. I'm just going to live comfortably and I'm going to live and uh, live here in prison and 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 try to thrive. So so then talk a little bit about what that looked like. I mean, what how, how for those of us who have no context, what does thriving in prison look like? I mean, what does what does living the life that you wanted to live in, in prison look like? Yeah, so that, that okay, so um, running a gambling racket where, you know, um, people are getting, are paid anywhere from five cents an hour to a big pay number is 24 cents an hour or like possibly like uh, if they're working in an industry, the prison industries, you could get up to 75 cents an hour. That's the most you could get paid. Um, and so someone's paycheck getting $40 a month to buy food was uh, to buy a canteen was considered okay. This person's living okay, and then you know at the the height of me in the gambling records, I could pull run run a, the the parlay tickets and pull in easily five six hundred dollars a week on just those alone, and are running um, this uh, getting involved with the cell phone um, trade where we have access to cell phones, and that means you could get on the internet, you could communicate. Um, there, so it's just uh, our own small bit of freedom, and that's what we just felt. Okay, this is the way I want to live, and this is how I'd like to live. So I think then there's the drug trade and tobacco, which was contraband at the time, and it's just all about being able to have not only money and or or, or food, but then there's status that comes with it, and that that continued to you know contribute to my my sense of oh I am someone, I am accomplished, I am recognized. It was a very shallow way of approaching it, but that's just how I lived for many years of my life. And, and as you said, that was roughly ten a decade or so of your life. 
But before we get to your personal sort of change moment, let's pause real quick and shout out where people can find you online, where they can follow you, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they can find me on all social media at uh, Quan X Huynh, that's spelled Q-U-A-N, and then an X, and then H-U-Y-N-H. Uh, they can also find me on my website, QuanXHuynh.com, uh, or if it's easier for them to remember, uh, SparrowInTheRazorWire.com, because I know people might be challenged with trying to spell my name. So yeah, either of those. Y'all know I love to read, and almost every episode of this podcast includes a recommendation to check out an awesome book. From Adid Jaffe's Abstinence Myth to Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream, I'm constantly looking for new books to learn from and enjoy. That's why I'm super excited to partner with Bookshop. Bookshop is a wonderful website that helps you find all your favorite books and support your local neighborhood bookstore in the process. I've bought everything from textbooks to Star Wars novels on Bookshop, and I've supported my local store with each transaction. Best of all, my Bookshop link will allow you to see all the books I've mentioned on the show right in one spot. So check out Bookshop today using the link in my show notes or go to bookshop.org slash shop slash C-Y-S and you'll find all the awesome books you want and support the podcast in the process. Check it out today. Subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash choose your struggle. And, and the book is fantastic. So obviously the book really uh, is, is because of this um, – I don't know. I mean, how do you want to call it? In a life change or a rebirth? What What do you see this moment as? Well, um, I call it my sparrow and the razor wire moment, and I think that's why I have that title. Uh, yeah, I, about 10, 11 years into the the sentence, it's you know one thing I always was, regardless uh, wherever I, my life led me. If I've always been a bookworm since a little boy up into all my time in prison, that's and that's what helped me to escape. So I get fascinated with different books, different subjects, and I tend to go down rabbit trails. Uh, let's say I read a book, I'm fascinated with the author. I'll look in the acknowledgements, what other books was he influenced by, what topics, and I get into those. Um, so during that time, about the 10th, 11th year, um, I was... Uh, I became fascinated with, uh, well, I was somehow reading books on entrepreneurship and I went down this other path and stumbled on books of the saints and especially uh, saints that had in one way or another failed in their lives, but yet went on to leave such legacies. And I was very drawn to these stories. Also around that time, uh, I, I got received a picture of my little niece, which is my brother's uh, daughter, my younger brother's daughter, and I remember seeing her picture for the first time, and that picture taking me back to childhood. Like this, she looks exactly like my brother, and it just made me question: How did my life end up like this? What's going on? And um, so, like during all this time, my head is filled up with these readings, think, questioning my own life, uh, reflecting back to my own father's life, who died when I was 13. He, I think he died when he was about 37, 38, and that's close to around the age I was at the time. And I contrasted like what he did in his life compared to what I did in my life. So all these things were, um, I guess, 
building up inside my mind and 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 my heart and everything. And of course, the books on the saints get me into books on spirituality and mindfulness and down those rabbit trails. And it was just one day on the yard, I uh, I asked myself like, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't this be a place where I could uh, remake myself and try to leave a legacy? Um, and, and I realized the answer is I could. And it was at that moment when, you know, the sun was coming up over the hills and I could feel the warmth uh, in the little blades of grass. I could see the individual drops of dew and up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And, you know, I tell people that that sparrow had been chirping my whole prison term. And I never heard it. But that day I heard it. And I say that day is where that the, the first small spark of transformation began for me, where I saw like wait, I am just on a journey. And there that's what everybody here on this yard is. Many of them uh, much further along, many of them, some of them perhaps not even awakened yet, but I begin to view each day as how can I remake myself into a better person, even if I'm supposed to die in here. So that's where I got even more fascinated on other subjects of uh, the restorative justice principles and uh, victims awareness and making amends and all these other things that suddenly lined up for me to understand about my place in the world and how I'd like to leave an impact and how I began, I would have to say, to change my mindset and and and, and my world, my worldview. So there's kind of two different directions I want to go in, but the first one is is internal. You said something that I, I kind of want to focus on for a second. You said the words making amends. Now, is that a thing that you were able to do internally and externally? I mean, part of that is making amends to the family of, uh, and, and the friends of the person whose life life you took. But the other half of that is making amends internally. I, I, what is what is your relationship been like with guilt? What is your relationship been like with forgiveness? Uh, internally, that was a bigger struggle. Of course, externally, I, could, I knew I could never make direct amends to the family of uh, the man that I killed. But then I could make sure that I could still make amends in that I would never um, harm another human being. I could try to change other people's mindsets to to accept responsibility and where does this tie in on another tangent with personal responsibility and choices and making impact. The internal part, even after I began to, to transform, I would say it took me a long time to even come to a part where I could even forgive myself or deal with the shame. I remember it was um, a few years after the Sparrow and the Race War moment when I was involved with groups and facilitating and and uh, leading uh, workshops on victims awareness and things like that. I was in this other workshop and there was this thing called um, uh, Who Are You? It's an exercise where we write on like 10 slips of paper, who are you and what's your role? Like, So I write like son, brother, and one of the words I described myself was murderer. And then during the exercise, the, uh, the facilitator led us into imagining like what does this role mean like what if you crumpled up this this paper and threw it away and you no longer have this part of your identity how does it feel and I remember feeling man this is so freeing why do I hold on to this why do I continue to hold on to this title for myself it's still a part of uh, me just unable to forgive myself unable to fully begin healing and that's when I realized I this is part of the internal part of me that I have to let go. Um, 
And yet, yes, I committed murder, but I am no longer a murderer. And that was where the distinction came. And I had to learn to embrace that part of it. And that was also a struggle, but that's where it began for even uh, changing that part of my, my internal dialogue. So in a, in a very real applied sense, how were you able to do that in prison in the sense of you were so wrapped up in this other image of you, like you said, running you know, different um, sort of organizations inside. Was that hard to separate yourself from? Or is it hard for you to say, I'm done doing this? Yes. I remember when I said, okay, I am done with this. That was the easy part to say I'm done. But then realizing how much of my own identity was wrapped up in all of it, you know, like uh, 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 known as a hustler, known as a gang member, known as the person to be connected with, like all of these and realizing that they were all fake. And having to admit to myself that, you know, I'm a fake and that I'm doing all of these things were built to impress or built to be recognized. And I really had no true substance as a person. Um, it was terrifying when, when I came to that realization. But, you know, like, you know, that saying when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Suddenly there were all these teachers and mentors that appeared for me, whether it's in the form of books, whether it's in the form of people that I ran into uh, lessons that I, I'm, I'm reading about. Uh, and that's where I began to just basically for me, I, I had to go back to my child identity, like me as a young little boy before my father was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, uh, how to re-nurture him and rebuild myself from that. And that's where I have to say I began to rebuild my, get back in touch with my old self and, and build that part of it out. So the proponents of the prison system say that it is a place of sort of restoration, of, of uh, rehabilitation. And yet that is not – there's little evidence to support that. So from, from as, as somebody who did sort of find rehabilitation in prison, how much of that was you making those choices and were there actually – opportunities uh, that, that were supported by the, the system itself? So I would say the vast majority of it has to be we make the choices ourselves. Um, the prison were historically did not have rehabilitative programs. Even when a lot of us began to uh, awaken and help each other, a lot of it was pure created. Like I was involved with creating a grief and loss group um, and this prison might sign off on it, but they didn't go and create any of these. We created our own victims awareness groups. We created, you know, we were part of facilitating alternatives to violence groups. So these are things that were peer created, peer facilitated. Of course, there were some programs that later on came in, but no, the prison system is not about restoration or, or rehabilitation. Mostly it's just about punishment. And, and, from your book, it seemed to me like not only was is that the case, and by the way, that that does come through in your book, but also that it there were times where the prison system kind of made it more difficult. You know, you you talk a little bit about the challenges to your mental health in this place, specifically in where you eat. You were very descriptive about what that experience was like being in the dining room, which was sounded terrifying, by the way. And and physical altercations that you were in that that actually seriously hurt you in the process. So I can imagine it would be really difficult to be trying to do this self this this personal growth 
and rehabilitation at the same time that you're very on edge and very anxious because at any moment something horrible could happen to you? Yeah, fortunately, I was uh, transferred to a, a lower level prison where there weren't that many acts of violence. And then like, because the prison I was transferred to towards the end was considered uh, the graveyard for lifers. It was, a, uh, it's one of like the, the level two prison um, at Solano and it had vast majority of them were lifer. Vast majority of these men had done upwards of 20, 25, 30 years in prison already. So things were a little bit more, I would have to say, chill, like not as not not as many uh, violent acts. And people have done enough time to know how to treat a little bit, uh, treat each other a little bit more with a little bit more sense of respect. But yet, yeah. So it was the, those those also contributed to it and, and helped in in a small sense. So you eventually get an opportunity for parole, which was a thing that I, I imagine was something that was not even on your radar until all of a sudden it became something you kind of had some hope for. Yeah, I um, the the first glimmer of tiny hope, for, I think, for all lifers in the state of California came out in a ruling in 2007 called Henry Lawrence. It was a woman that fought her case all the way to Supreme Court at, that got the the, the courts to agree that there has to be a distinction between life without possibility of parole and life with the possibility of parole. But yet, even when it came out with all these, um, the parameters of it, I fell under what was considered factors of unsuitability, where it says multiple arrests, violent acts in prison, and 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 uh, still had write-ups and all these. So I, I, in 07, I still didn't think that it applied to me. But as more and more men began to get found suitable that's when i think it it dawned like hey i think there may be a chance for some of us out here because uh, at the time i think it had they had to be perfect re- prison records done upwards of 30 years and in their 60s so i i never thought any of that would apply to me but then yet when my um my sparrow on the razor wire moment came and i started seeing prison in a different light i already began to feel free so it wasn't even about the parole board it was more I found this amazing sense of freedom inside and, and I'd like to share it with the men around me. And I think this is our key to freedom while we're in here. And, and, and you do eventually get the opportunity for parole and you're granted that. And, you know, I don't want to skip over too much, but, but in, in the interest of time, let's, let's kind of talk about that moment now. So, so you're, you, you know, Talk about what you felt like going into that opportunity and then when you found out that you were going to be paroled. Yeah, I, I first went up for parole in 2014. Um, I was denied, no, 2013. I was denied five years. Um, and that was crushing in itself because there were some uh, very uh, hurtful things and harsh things that were said to me inside the parole board. But then on top of that, when I came back to the yard, like I, uh, there were people that scoffed at me and said, see, you don't know what you're doing. You, uh, they'll never get out. And then also some uh, family members who I think wrote uh, to me and just made me feel like they, they didn't believe in me. Like they just thought like, okay, they were concerned more about my mental health. Um, I, I filed a petition to advance my hearing and uh, I went back to the parole board in 2015, November, uh, and inside that hearing, I 
had to face the same commissioner that battered me at my first hearing. Uh, and it was, and I thought the hearing was even worse than my first hearing. So I thought for sure I was getting denied. Uh, I just didn't know how long it was going to be. Um, inside the hearing though, after, after when they came back with the decision, uh, surprisingly, the commissioner said that she felt I was no longer a threat to society. And that's when um, she had stated that I could be uh, paroled. So November of 2015, I was released from prison after uh, about 16 and a half years of incarceration. And what was that feeling like? Talk about that moment when you first heard that you were going to be paroled. Oh, I, I broke down crying. I, I, I was shocked. I was ecstatic. I was happy. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just, yeah, I, I, I would say the, the, the most overwhelming feeling of all was shock and, and happiness and, and joy uh, because I, I, I thought I thought hearing was going bad and I thought I was going to be denied multiple years and for for that to be almost granted like a miracle. I was like, man, I thank, thank you. Thank God. All of that. So you get out and, and how soon after do you start working with this program that you're now working for? Uh, I got out, I was involved with the program inside as, as one of their entrepreneurs in training. Um, and I paroled before our, our first uh, pitch competition event. So I continued with the program after I came home. Um, and through continuing with the program, I uh, created my first company six months after that. It's a commercial cleaning company. Um, and then when they expanded out here to Southern California to do a post-release part of it. That's when I was asked. So that was about four years ago now, I think three and a half, four years ago, uh, I was asked if I'd be interested in joining the, the team as a staff member and I did. So yeah, that's about four years now. I've been involved with the five benches to basically help other men and women coming home from prison to adjust to their new world. And, and, you know, talk, talk a little bit about what that work looks like, because this is something that we're finally starting to focus more on that uh, sort of for a long time, the narrative was, well, they're out now, everything's fine, but that's not obviously not the case. So, so what, what kind of work does your organization do to, to literally help those coming out of prison? Yeah, well, uh, first and foremost, I mean, at the five ventures, we believe uh, everyone deserves a second chance and, and, and or everyone deserves a fair first chance, which many of uh, people that are incarcerated did not have. So we began with the work inside. Uh, we use entrepreneurship as a lens and a tool to get them to, to realize that they could be the, the CEOs of their new lives. Uh, so it's we bring in about uh, 40 to 50 volunteers. Uh, they serve as judges of uh, for the pitch competitions that are conducted Shark Tank style. It's a seven month program that uses entrepreneurship, but there's a large component of character and personal development into it. And it gets them to realize that they have value, that we believe in them, and uh, that, we, that we're there to support them, especially once they come home. So once they come home, they become part of our post-release uh, services where we can get them connected, uh, refer them out to other resource providers, bring them to our uh, workshops and events that can help them with practical things like uh, technology basics, email basics, time management, uh, rebuilding credit after reentry, giving them a community just to have them feel like they're a part of something. 
getting them to be uh, supported by our volunteers who are part of the business and entrepreneurship community. Well, I think it's such a great program, and clearly, you you can uh, sing their praises because it, it it helped you, and you are turning around and, and giving back, which I think is incredible. Uh, thank you so much for for being so open with your story. I, I just think it's it's so important to uh, for people who who are in your position to be this vulnerable and strip away some of the. The, the the BS that we always hear around, you know, crime and in the prison system and to really tell honest stories. So uh, I very much appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for helping us to shed light and amplify these messages. So thank you. Well, before we go to the final couple questions, Quan, one more time, shout out where people can find you, where they can follow you, where they can grab the book. And, and then we'll uh, we'll finish with the last couple. Yeah, they can get the book off Amazon or Audible, or they go straight to my website. So once again, sparrowintherazorwire.com. Uh, you can find all my social media on it too. Or if you want to try to spell my name, it's Quan, Q-U-A-N-X, and then Huynh, H-U-Y-N-H. Uh, they can find me on all social media. It's under that Quan X Huynh. Fantastic. Well, I definitely say this again. Grab the book. I, I am very lucky to have a signed copy sitting here, and I've enjoyed reading it, so thank you for that. So uh, we finished with the same two questions every time. Number one, uh, not just, well, I guess not just when you were in prison, but but period, what self-care habits work for Quan? Oh, I have a long list of those. Uh, exercise, uh, reading, uh, listening to music. Uh, sharing, uh, uh, having somebody to, to talk to, um, yeah, play, play sports, uh, listen to, listen to the, the, um, that your inner voice in nature, just give yourself time to decompress. Those are, those are all fantastic. All right. So the last one that we always do is we've now spent the last 45 minutes hearing about how you're awesome. We should all be following you and your work, but who are some people that you follow? What are you reading? What are you listening to that we should all go check out? Uh, I'm part of a book club that we started right when the pandemic happened. We're currently reading a book called uh, Black Buck. It's hilarious. I, I would say that it's by Matteo Ascaricor, I think. Uh, it's a great book. Um, of course, uh, people that I, I, I love reading is uh, anything Malcolm Gladwell. So I, I think he just has a new book come out, so I have to go grab that. Um, yeah, there's, uh, and then of course, our work at DeFi Ventures. Uh, that's, that, that's, I think that, that helps me stay grounded and, and realize that I can continue to make an impact in the world. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Quan. It's been fascinating to hear your story, and I'm sure my listeners will love it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jay. I am so excited to tell you about my new CBD sponsor, Roadrunner. You all know I love my old CBD sponsor, and I switched for one main reason. This stuff works. I've been a runner my whole life, but unfortunately, I'm also super easily injured. One of my high school friends used to call me Mr. Glass. And back in 2015, when I ran my first half marathon, I got hurt, like really hurt. And since then, I haven't been able to run more than three or four miles without serious pain. 
That is, until I tried Roadrunner CBD's Muscle Gel. In a few short months, I'm regularly running five and a half to six miles each outing, and I'm currently training for my next half marathon. I don't want to call it a miracle cure, but it's damn near close. So check it out at my personal Roadrunner link, which is roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS, or at the link in my show notes or on my podcast website, and use the code CYS at checkout to get 10% off on all of their awesome products. Check it out today. Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn, and choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the 99th episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. So I hope you enjoyed Quan's uh, conversation here today. I- I've read his book. Um, I don't. <laughs> everyone who comes on, I at least know something about their work. I-, I don't invite people on blindly. That's that's just that wouldn't be a good for this show. And-, and my team knows that, right? When when we're talking about who to have on the show, uh, they they are. I mean, I'm very clear with them. These cannot just be a person who, oh, you know, I saw this guy on the news or something like I wouldn't, you know, as much as I think, oh, I don't know who's a great actor that I, I love. Uh, I'm looking at my Star Wars collection right now. So so let's say Harrison Ford, as much as I love Harrison Ford and I do, obviously, my logo is based on <laughs> Han Solo. I wouldn't just invite him on to invite him on. Like, what would we talk about? Right. So. I at least know about everyone's work. Quan, I've actually read his book. I, I he, he offered to send it to me, and I, I, my rule is uh, no. I don't want anyone sending me free stuff, uh, so, so I will pay for it. And uh, my only ask is that they sign it, and, and so that's what I do whenever there's someone who has a book or something like that uh, who comes on the show. And Quan did sign it and send me his book. Uh, and I read it very quickly. It's it's very good. Um, it's easy to read. Uh, not not in the content. It's tough. I mean, th- there are parts of it that are tough. But but Quan has a great writing style, and, and so uh, I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, it's it's fantastic. I'm looking at it right now. It's on my bookshelf. I, I, it's very very good. Uh, so check that out. And, and if you want a signed copy, reach out to Quan because he was nice enough uh, to to do that for me. So. Uh, thank you again, Quan, and, and yes, please, please check out his book and, and take what he said to heart. By the way, there is a lot in this this conversation today. Your card. We're gonna use the Train Your Brain card pack from Dr. Jennifer Sweeten uh, as a reminder because this is one of the newer ones. This is a hundred techniques to heal trauma and build resiliency. Those, of course, are great, uh, great tips. These are always wonderful. Um, there are, oh, I'm, I'm, I've been bad at this lately, shuffling. I'm also, my, my hand is bandaged right before this, um, right before I started recording this. I was cutting a bagel because our, our bagel slicer, yeah, we're that fancy. Uh, our bagel slicer is in the wash, and um, I slipped and cut into my finger. And, and it was one of those cuts that, I joked about this, I tweeted this out, that you know when, it, when you cut yourself and it's so deep that you actually don't even bleed for a minute because even your body is like, whoa, <laughs> like it was so deep your body's like frozen in shock uh that's what this was so my hand is bandaged but uh, i'm fine everything is fine here is your card today for improving emotional regulation train spotting 
by the way, very good movie Movie with uh, a guy that I love very much, Ewan McGregor. Uh, not the greatest representation of heroin use, but, you know, still a, still a good movie. Uh, train spotting. Shift your awareness to any thoughts flowing through your mind. As you, observe, as you observe these thoughts, visualize them as moving trains, with each train representing a thought. Imagine watching these trains from a slight distance. As an observer, don't attempt to change or interact with these trains. Simply identify each train with a sentence, as in, there is that thought train about X. Your job is to watch these trains, allowing them to enter, move through, and exit your mind at their own pace. Taking the observer stance will strengthen your ACC, which stands for Anterior Cingulate Cortex. Uh, That's a great exercise. I don't know about the the science part at the end there. That's obviously not my area of expertise. But um, that kind of goes into one of the tips that I uh, talk about on my class, uh, Mindfulness Beyond Meditation on Listenable. By the way, uh, that's been doing incredibly well, uh, so much so that, you know, there was someone in my life who was like, why don't you just do that full, you know what I mean? Like, they were like, just do that. And I was like, eh, I like that being a piece of my work. I don't want to focus 100% on, on the mindfulness stuff. Um, but that's doing really well. So if, if you're interested, there is a link uh, in my campsite bio, which is in the show notes here, um, or just you know search for me on any social media, uh, or go to Listenable and search for Mindfulness Beyond Meditation. So uh, check that out. But but one of the tips is the one that I talk about a lot, which is the the daily check in, and and sort of like this exercise, but I use the analogy of a of a, a garden where you really can't know it's down there until you you do the work to get down your hands and knees and start digging, and, and that's. That's what that's all this is. You know, that's all this is, is sitting back and observing the thoughts that are coming in and out of your out of your brain. You know, you're we kind of uh, the, the, the using this train metaphor, we are only sort of aware of the trains that are coming in above ground. But the, the vast network of underground of the subway is just as big, if not larger. Uh, in most cases, it's a lot larger. And we don't know what's down there unless you take the time to walk down the stairs and check it out. So uh, great card. Definitely, definitely recommend doing that. So your good egg today is one that I've, I've done it before, I know. In fact, I think I've done it a couple times, but I'm going to do it again today in honor of Quan. Uh, it's going to be challenging, you know, one of your sort of predispositions. Let's go with that word. So like Quan said in this, or, or like, I guess, the, the, the message from this episode is that if you just heard, okay, this guy is a convicted murderer, I guarantee you there are about a thousand things running through your head and not many of them are good. Um, and, and some of them are just, some of them are accurate, some of them are earned, but, but the overall message that you're probably taking away is this is a bad person. And if you couldn't tell from the conversation with Quan, he's not that at all. He's, he, in fact, we had a really good chat, um, both on, you know, for the episode, but also we chatted for a couple of minutes afterwards. He's just a nice guy and shit happens, you know, not, I, I don't, and I made this clear on the episode, but I guess I'll say it again here. I'm not excusing what he did because there's not, that that's not, first off, who cares, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just a podcast host who cares, uh, my thoughts on murder or his murder particularly, but also I'm not, I'm not excusing what he did. What I am saying is that it's great that he has worked so hard, both internally and externally to try to do as much as he can to make amends on this, uh, to himself and to those, you know, that lost somebody, um, 
you know, we, we forget a lot that when a murder happens and a person goes away, in Quan's case at the time it was thought to be for life, you know, two families have lost people. And while there is no excuse, of course, uh, for the murder itself, uh, there is loss on both sides and there is, uh, there is that hurt on both sides and, and on many, for many people. So challenge a, a thought that you might have had uh, a preconceived notion. Let's go. I like that better. Let's let's say that challenge a preconceived notion, whether you're in a moment and someone says something and you notice your brain going somewhere or in a conversation where someone's making a good point and your rush is to to tell them they're wrong because uh, that point is is sort of counter to um, what we've been taught for a long time. Right. I mean, that literally is the story of, of my work around drug policy. So that's your good egg. Challenge a, a preconceived thought. But above all else, as always, be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle.